Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 today, and we're going to be looking at probably just verses 1 through 4 as far as I can get, I think. The title of the message is The Future Predicted in the Past Basically Has Now Become the Present. And something that was predicted to come, something uh, an event that happened in the past which predicts a future event is now coming. And basically we're looking in this passage, the prototype for the Antichrist and globalism or the one world government or the system that the Antichrist will use to um, control the entire world. Now, when we look at a passage like this, you have to understand that the Tower of Babel, there's three things that happened in the Old Testament that we've studied, and you, it, this sets the foundation for the entire Bible. What I mean by that is this. You have to understand the fall. You have to understand what happened in Genesis 6 with the sons of God coming on the daughters of women and producing Nephilim. And then you have to understand the Tower of Babel. Those are the three major things that underscore why God has to make everything right through his son, Jesus Christ. And what you'll see is that this beginning of Nimrod being a type of Antichrist and him forming a one-world government under the Tower of Babel is predicting a future time that this will happen at a greater scale with the Antichrist himself and then with the global government controlling all of the world. And so we're going to get into a lot of eschatology today. Um, so if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, I'll, I'm going to bring some things into that, some principles. Because one of the things I want you to note is this. When you look at the Tower of Babel, then you extrapolate into prophecy from what prophecy says about Babel, about Babylon. And what you start ending up doing is you'll realize that Scripture interprets Scripture. So if it's the embryonic stage of the one world government and Nimrod acting as the Antichrist, what you can do is look at the parallels of what the end time thing will look like, the real thing that it pointed to, and then you can extrapolate back into the story the same principles that the whore does now in the future and will do. And so Scripture interprets Scripture. So a lot of what you're reading on face value, you won't see it. But if you know the rest of the story about how the whore develops in these last times, which she is right now, you then can look back into this text and understand more at a deeper level. So what I'm going to say to you, sometimes might you might need the foundation of the book of Revelation to understand where I'm going with this. And, and because... Look, the whore of Babylon has not changed. She's the same back in Nimrod's day as she was or is today and will be in the future. So it's not something new. It's something old. The only thing that was a mystery that the Old Testament didn't say about the whore of Babylon is that she would unite with the kingdoms of the world in the last days. That's the only thing that they didn't know. We know it now. that She will be united with the one world government. But nonetheless, we still can learn a lot by looking at her embryonic beginnings and extrapolating out what we see today. Because, folks, I hate to tell you this, and I hate to break the news to you and spoil, you know, your perception of reality, but she's alive. She's making her move. 
And if you're not aware of her, you're going to get caught up like a lot of Christians are getting caught up in. They don't even know where she's at. Look, don't think for a moment that the threat from the outside is your problem. The horror gets inside. So Satan will distract you with people like George Soros or a lot of evil things going on. But what you will not see is what is right standing right next to you. That is the most deceptive thing that Satan can do is infiltrate and destroy you, your family, and the church that you go. It's called divide and conquer. You'll see that today. But she's alive and well. She's making her move. And it's important for us then to be able to see her. And you have to study passages like this. Now, let me put the caveat on it. When you're in Genesis 1 through 11, this is hardcore stuff. There's no doubt about it. Now, people preach this stuff, but they just gloss over it and don't give you the depth of it. The issue is you have to know the depth of it so you can understand the future and the present. You have to know these things. They're foundational. But, my friends, they are so wicked and evil, it's beyond what most people can comprehend. And that's why a lot of people don't want to go there, because it scares people. You don't have to be afraid. The best way to prepare for the present and the future is to know what to expect. Know what God has said. And like Jesus said to the disciples, see, I have told you beforehand, before it happens, I want to tell you how it goes down. And that's what we have to take as believers because we will need that strength to carry on in these last days. Do you think it's getting tougher and tougher every day to be, be a Christian in America? Better believe it. And if you're not prepared for that, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to compromise or stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. But it's happening. She's here. And we need to know how to fight this spiritual battle. So just a little background on this. This is the start of a one-world society, a one-world religion under one leader. They had one economic system. They had the hallmarks of the Whore of Babylon. The Whore of Babylon stands on three legs. Economics, politics, and religion. Those are the three legs of the Whore of Babylon. And you will see here, it encompasses all of them. And in the future and presently, it encompasses all of them. So your radar needs to be put out as you view the world. I need to be focusing on economics and what they're doing. I need to focus on politics and where it's going. Not so much like the, the nitty-gritty, uh, getting into the weeds type of politics. I need to know, are the politics lending itself to globalism? Are they pushing globalism? And then religiously, I want to know of the false church that the whore is creating, the false religion that she's creating, the religion of tolerance, the religion of no judgmentalism, the religion of acceptance of all lifestyles, the religion of no absolutes, postmodernism, everything's relative to what you want to do, the religion of you do what makes you feel good, or the religion of follow your heart. That's the whore of Babylon. You can see her hallmarks, but she will eventually get so wicked she will cut people's heads off in the tribulation period. Because if you don't comply with her, she will kill you. And the same thing goes true with this situation here. What you're going to see is opposition to God through all this whole story. And the way you're going to see opposition is not just a full frontal attack against God, but an attack on God's 
nationalism, language, culture, borders, an assault on his commands, where God says, you will scatter, and they say, no, we will not. It's just like today, God says, this is wrong, that's wrong, and the world comes back and says, no, it's not, it's just love, right? And you will see this lawlessness in Babylon, which is now what we're seeing today. It's a picture right now of our world, and it's a picture of where it's going. So let's dig into this as much as we can. Let's look at this and take the nuggets of what it's saying for our own personal lives, because I'm going to make application all through this. And the application I'm going to make is not how to have a better marriage or how to raise your kids. The application will be how you view the world and how to view it properly so you don't get deceived. That will be the application as I carry this all through, okay? So let's start in verse 1, chapter 11 of Genesis. Verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth, all the inhabitants, had one language and one speech. That's a clue right there. And it goes deep. Now, what does it mean? Obviously, different languages hadn't been developed. So the language they were speaking is Hebrew. The original language that started with Adam and Eve is Hebrew. How do we know that? Well, the names in Genesis of all the people there are in Hebrew. You can't make sense of their name unless you take them in Hebrew. The principles and concepts in Genesis are all Hebraic. And even God's name is Hebrew, Yahweh. Even Jesus, his Hebrew name is Yeshua. And obviously the Holy Spirit is the Ruach HaKodesh. It's all Hebrew. And so when you start seeing these things, you realize even in the word plays of Genesis, the chiastic structures in Genesis all point to a Hebrew language being the first language. Isn't it interesting? that Paul will mention this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. He says, Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What I want you to notice in that passage, when Paul mentions, if I speak the language of angels, which tongues is a foreign language, by the way. Tongues is not ecstatic utterances, drummed up by saying rub-a-dub-dub, rub-a-dub-dub, and then all of a sudden I speak in tongues. A lot of churches will do it. About 98% of the churches who speak in tongues are doing it wrong. Tongues is a foreign language given by God to do evangelism and missionary. Does it still exist? Yes, but it's a foreign language. When Paul mentions, if I speak the tongues of men, talking about foreign languages, or if I speak the tongues of angels, do you know what language the angels speak? What language do they speak in heaven? Hebrew. It's the official language of heaven. It's the language of Genesis, and that's what this is referring to. So, okay, everyone's speaking Hebrew. By the way, do you know we're going back to speaking Hebrew one day? In the Messianic ring, the official language will be put into effect again. You have this in Zephaniah 3.9. For then I will store to the peoples a pure language, that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. We saw a preview of that at Pentecost when the disciples were able to speak and everyone understood them. So in the Messianic reign, Christ will restore Hebrew back and we'll be able to speak Hebrew. And that's the language of heaven. But nonetheless, this is what they're speaking. But here's the implication that I want to go with. God is indicating through Moses that language is a unifier 
That's why in the Messianic kingdom, we will speak Hebrew because it's a unifying language. Everyone speaks the same language. To have multiple language causes division. Okay, so follow me. This unifier of language is causing the problem right now because Messiah is not on the throne controlling the world. An antichrist type guy is, Nimrod. And he's unifying people through language. Now, take it to our world today. The unifying language that's now being used across the board is English. It's the language of business. If you're going to do business internationally, you got to know English. We now have apps that if you go into a foreign country, all you have to do is speak into the app and it'll speak the language for you. Or you can you type in the language and it'll translate it for you. We have apps now that you can carry that translate right on the spot. So you don't have to worry about learning another language. You know what they're saying. That, my friends, is a unifying aspect that creates a unification of all humanity. Is that a good thing? No. Not right now. It's a good thing in the Messianic kingdom because Jesus is ruling and reigning, but not right now. We have too many evil people running this world, and if you have a universal language, you can control everybody through the language. Why is language so important? Because if you watch what God did in creation, he created through language, his language. The Lord said, let there be light. That's language, and it created reality. Now, what the devil knows and what he's inspired people to do is to change reality for people, not in real time, but to change reality for people, change the language which they speak. So what do you mean? Well, just 30, 40 years ago in America, if you said someone's a homosexual, you would say, okay, man, that's, that's not according to the Bible. But if today you see that, the language has been changed, and well, he just has an alternative lifestyle. You see how the language changes? It's not abortion. It's not murdering a baby. It's a woman's right. You see how you change the language? All the communist Marxists, and it didn't start with them. It started with Satan. All you have to do is keep telling people an alternative term for it that puts a positive spin. And before you know it, the lemmings of this world will follow that. Yeah, you're right. It's a woman's right. And, and this is, it's just love between two men and two women. It's just love. It's just love. No, you've redefined love. Love has boundaries. Love has definition. And if you don't go by those definitions, it is not love. It's a false version. So language is a key component in understanding things. So anyway, the language is being unified today. What did I mention a couple, two times already that the scriptures already said? God wants distinct nuclear families. What are they doing? Destroying the family. He wants distinct languages because languages keep countries separated. He wants distinct lands, that means borders, and he wants distinct nations. Why? Because when you have that kind of division, it keeps in check rogue countries. It keeps in check nations that get out of control. So thank God, you know, that if Iran gets out of sorts, that America and Israel will do something about that. It curtails evil. Like when World War II happened, who was going to stop Nazi Germany? Well, we had to get involved. Britain had to get involved. All these other countries had to come against them to shut them down. That's how divisions of languages happen. It's a good thing. But what is our world pushing right now? We all got to be one. We all got to be unified. Well, wait a second. If we're all unified and there's no culture or borders or language, how do we check other people in France or Germany that get out of control? 
or Islam or in the Islamic nations? How do we check them? We can't because somebody would be controlling us and controlling our nation and taking away our sovereignty and telling us what we should do and not do. You get into a situation where you're impotent and it's based on the, the leadership of who's controlling the system. That's what Nimrod's doing. He realizes, and whether he came up with his own idea, I don't know. I think it's satanic, and obviously he was connected to satanic and demonic, and he's getting information from them of how to set this thing up because it's so sophisticated, you would have to think it came from Satan. What's going to happen in the tribulation is so sophisticated, it has to come from the mind of Satan. It's so sophisticated. So I don't think it's on a human level, but he's carrying out the orders, okay? So let's go back to the text, verse 2. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. Now, give you some maps here to understand where the land of Shinar is. It's right there in the middle. It's on the Fertile Crescent. And obviously Nimrod's empire stretches from Assyria all the way down to the Persian Gulf in that whole area. That's called the Fertile Crescent. And let me show you another picture. This is zoning in a little closer. This whole area, when it has the Tigris and Euphrates, is a very fertile area. Back then, it was way more fertile than it is now. And so Nimrod is controlling this whole fertile crescent. Now, it's funny that they went to this spot. You think, well, what is the big deal about this spot? Do you know where Canaan settled after he got disbanded? He went to this area. Canaan who's the first, you know, one to kill his brother and get into rebellion against God because he wanted to bring his own works, ends up settling in this locale. So later on, down the line, one of his progenitors, Nimrod, comes and starts establishing this area as well in memorial to Canaan, the first rebel, really, in human history, other than Adam when they first did that, but I'm talking outside the garden. So he comes to the same location. This is important. What you see in the Bible is there's a linear timeline, but that timeline is cyclical. And what you see in scriptures, the patterns keep repeating. And what you should expect in the future, and there's already plans for this, is once Antichrist sets up the kingdom of Babylon, the one world government, it will be located in the very same location where the Tower of Babel was built. It's all going back. From where it started, it's going back. Now, there's already talk of moving the UN to Iraq. Have you heard that? I wouldn't be shocked if they do, if they move it to Babylon, right there in the middle of Iraq. Now you think, oh, that couldn't happen. They're already talking about it, guys. They're already talking about it. These are, are what they say. It's not me making it up. They want to go back. Now, funny, who put that in their head? To say, hey, we need to move the UN to back to the Tower of Babel. I'll show you next week. Do you know what the UN building looks like? I'll show you next week. The architect who created the UN building created it to look like the Tower of Babel. And it's unfinished. And do you know why the architect left it unfinished? Because the UN and their elitist evil mindsets say, we need to finish the work of Nimrod. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. It's funny. Wherever something begins, God makes a point to end it there. And he will destroy Babylon eventually in the future, in the tribulation, in one hour, he says, in the book of Revelation. Now, 
this rebellion that, that Nimrod's going to do is come in two stages, okay? So I want to take you through the stages. So let's look at the first stage, verse 3. The first stage is this. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Do you catch, do you catch the let us? That's exactly what Yahweh said among the Trinity for creating us and, and doing different things. It's an imitation that these people think they're God. And they're going to create their own kingdom, their own utopia. Isn't that funny? That's the same thing people think today. They're going to create their own utopia. We have Christians who are so fooled that they think they're going to usher in the kingdom without Jesus. You have to be insane to think that. You must not know your Bible to think you're going to build the kingdom. You can't build it without Christ. But yet we have Christians, the majority of Christians think they're doing it through social justice. But then let's go back. Come, let us... They said to one another, what is that? What is that language? You know what that language is? It's the language of collectivism. It's the language of communism today. Now, when you talk about collectivism, you're talking about this is not based on individuals making decisions. This is not based on individual work, nor is it based on individual responsibility. It's based on the good of the whole, which is antithetical to the Bible. The good of the whole is collectivism. This is why you see even in religious circles, collective salvation. And in this collective salvation, we got to work to the common good. We got to work together to solve illiteracy. And then we will be saved. Obama mentioned that. In his liberation theology, when he was president, he mentioned collectivism and said salvation is dependent on us eradicating the ills of society. That comes from Babylon. Anyone that starts getting collectivism is not coming from the Bible. It's coming from Satan. The Bible pushes individualism. It's individual salvation. You're individually responsible for your life and the decisions you make. And you're responsible as an individual, for serving Christ. You don't get blanketed in just because you're part of the church. Yes, the church is an organism, but you're an individual in that, and you have responsibilities. But in their mentality, it's groupthink. Let us for the common good. Guys, you should see this today. They do this in schools. It's for the common good. Let no child be left behind. Common good. Universal health care, common good. What about the people who refuse to work? Do they get health care? Yeah, they will under universal health care because that's collectivism. The Bible militates. If you don't work, you don't eat. Oh, that seems so harsh. And boy, that's just, huh, that's intolerant that you would say if someone doesn't work, they don't eat. Guess what? It would solve all your homeless problem. But because, well, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a village to help the homeless, we all got to pitch in and do our part. What about the irresponsibility of shooting up drugs? Is that my responsibility to help someone who's shooting up drugs all the time? No, it's not biblical. But yet I keep seeing homeless on Target all over the place and it's a collective problem. We got to work to solve it together. How are you going to solve it together? Oh, I know what you're going to do. You're going to tax me, aren't you? And create in Bakersfield a group of people who clean up the poop, the poop patrol here in Bakersfield. That's collectivism, guys. That wouldn't happen if you had a Christian who knew that collectivism is wrong. 
But what have they done? Even if they call themselves Christian, they've assumed the horror of Babylon's thinking. Yikes. Now think about this. When you start looking into this, what happens in group consensus is that the group becomes a victim coalition. A victim coalition. Now, you'll see this later in the text. I'll show it to you next week. But in the text, they say they're a victim. They said, let's build this tower and come together lest we be scattered. Victim. They're claiming victimhood from God, that God's the oppressor and they're the oppressed because God wants them to scatter. And they're thinking this good thing that God has said, I want you to scatter and multiply and and harness the earth's power. They think what he said is evil, not good, but evil. That he, him wanting them to disperse is evil. And therefore, now we're the victims. And we got to group together because, man, we have a common enemy. And we got to come against them. Do you ever understand why the Red-Green Alliance happens? The communists, the Marxists, the socialists with Muslims? Do you know why? Victim groups blaming the scapegoat Christians. We got to, hey, the Muslims and the communists are getting together saying, we got to get these Christians. They're the ones standing in the way of everything. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and we're all victim uh, coalition. You know, there's Islamophobia, and there's, there's all this other stuff. And so who's perpetrating it? It's the Christians doing it, so we got to come after them. It's the same thing they did to God. We're victims of your intolerance to our lifestyles, of your oppressive rules that you put on my life. I should be free to do anything I want to do. Do you know the first commandment in Satanism? Do you know what it is? Do what makes you feel good. That's their first command. Do whatever you want. And so God come in saying, you will do this and you won't do that. Oh, that's just too restrictive. You Christians are pushing your rules on me, not allowing me to live my humanity out and thrive and, and be the person I want to be. So you want to be a drag queen princess and read to kids in a public library. That should be allowed? Are we insane? You're free to be a drag queen? I don't think so. Not according to God. But keep going with this. This this victim mentality, have you seen it perpetrated in our culture? Every group is a victim. Everyone. Radical feminism, LGBT, you name the group, they're all victims. And this is what I want to say. Give me the evidence of victimhood. Show me. Show me the, where this happened. Where were you victimized? Well, someone was, you know, said that they're, they're against my lifestyle. How is that oppressive? How is that physically harming you when someone gives a different opinion? I thought our country is based on freedom of speech, that I have a, an opinion that disagrees with you, and you have to accept that, and I have to accept what you say. But now it's, no, no, I'm a victim. Your language is hurting my feelings, right? Your language is hurting my feelings, and I feel, I feel oppressed by you, and, and, and this is hostile language. What are you talking about? Are you a snowflake? What are you, man? But see, victimhood creates snowflakes. That's what it does. But that's what they're doing. Nimrod caused them to be a victim. God is oppressing us. He wants to scatter us. And bless God, you know, you know, God's gonna, God's gonna send another flood and kill us all. We can't do this. We gotta clump up together and fight him. Just like they're doing today. We gotta fight against these Judeo-Christian ethics and these Christians. And Israel too, by the way. We gotta fight them as well. The great Satan and the lesser Satan, as they call it. 
See, here's the deal. What they're doing in our school systems, you have to understand this as a parent or a grandparent. The school system is taking away individuality and creating collectivism, that what's good for the whole, okay? This is why in education, they will then teach to the lowest common denominator in the class, where smart kids with high IQs are held back by the slow kid in the class. Because they will, in some schools, they don't even have general classes. They put everyone in college prep. Excuse me? Do you not understand there's kids at different levels? There's kids at the general level, there's kids at college prep, and there's kids at honors. And you're going to mix a general kid with an honors kid? What frustration is the honor kid going to have? He's going to be slowed down because collectivism goes, we go at the pace of the slowest kid. That's how they're teaching, to the lowest common denominator. No one's going to tell you that. Even the teachers themselves don't even know what's happening. But the system they incorporate does. Sacramento the Department of Education knows exactly what they're doing. They're creating drones who can't think. They're taking away individuality by saying, you don't have a right to an opinion. Now, how do they do this? And you'll see this at your job. You'll see this in schools. Have you noticed in schools, they will try to do group projects. That's called the Delphi technique. Most people don't even know it's being used against, and most teachers don't even know they're even using the Delphi technique. The Delphi technique is used to squash individuality and create consensus. They'll do this at town hall meetings with the city. They'll do this at other things at your work. And here's how they do it. They'll have individual groups. So you, let's say you're there at a work. And they say, we're going to have a, a conference. And, and, and this guy's going to tell us about the new way of doing things at our company. And what we're going to do is we're going to break everybody up into groups. We're going to give you a few things to talk about. So they'll put you in a group of about six to eight people. Okay, they do this in schools too. And in that six to eight people, what will happen is there is, you know, they'll give a topic like, you know, there's something that's black and white for you and I. Okay, like LGP. We're, we're now going to be sensitive to LGB people and give them positions in our work. So we all have to have uh, sensitivity training, right? So they're going to have, we need you guys to talk about this in your groups and we'll come back. Then you start talking about it in the group. And more than likely, you're the only one that disagrees, right? But the other ones at the table won't. They'll go along with it because they're lemmings. They don't even know they're being conned. So at that group table, if you come out with an extreme view, like, no, that's totally wrong, boom, the group will then edit you and say, look, you need to calm down. You need to come and compromise. You see what I'm saying? And inevitably, it works very well. So the Christian out there who has these black and white issues is caused to compromise because, well, you know, I, I want to get along with people in my group. I work with these people and I don't want them to think I'm extreme or intolerant and anti-LGBT. And so that person then compromises to be part of the group think and they create, well, we don't want to go too extreme, but let's, let's meet in the middle. Give a little bit. You see the problem with that? How can you give a little on a black and white issue? You can't. It's either yes or no, right? But that's what they're doing to Christians with the Delphi technique is group think. And then the group says, yeah, this is what we discovered. This is what we think. And all of a sudden, the Delphi technique has been used on the person to compromise them. That happens in schools all the time. Group projects. Where do they get that idea from? It's the Delphi technique. 
because the group is going to edit the one that's out of bounds. You know, it's a form of communism. When you get into a group and a group project, you ever been a part of a, in school, a group project? You know what happens in that group? One person does all the work and the rest are freeloaders. Right? That's what happens in group work. It happens all the time. And the teachers and the administrators, well, they just think it's not even happening. Why would you give an A to the whole group when one person did all the paper? Well, they're part of a group. No, no, no. That's communism. That's collectivism. How about this? No more groups make each individual work on their project alone. That's biblical. But see, folks, it's called consensus building. They think that's good. It comes from Babylon. And it's being used in your schools, in your jobs, and in our society. Why do you think they have town hall meetings for the politicians? You see that guy stand up to Joe Biden the other day? Joe Biden called him fat and he can do more exercises and do more push-ups than him. What is that relevant to the argument? It's not even germane. But it's just Joe Biden being Joe Biden. But what happened to that man in that town hall? The group came against him. The Delphi technique was used. Why do you think they do town halls? It's to prevent that guy from saying anything against Joe Biden. He had enough guts to do it, but the group came and attacked him. That's what's happening to Ben Shapiro going to UCLA or Berkeley speaking out. What do these, these hippies do to him? They shut him down. They won't let him speak. They won't let conservative Christians or whoever, are you just conservative people, come in and share free speech. They shut him down. That's called collectivism. And that's an, a, a taking away of the First Amendment rights, be able to free speech, free association, all that stuff comes from Babylon. Now, that being the case, the second thing I want you to understand, and it's, it's just it's so uncanny, man. You can see the handwriting on the wall on this with coming from Satan. I don't know if Nimrod came up with this idea or Satan gave it to him. I think Satan did. But Nimrod manufactured a crisis. I want you to let that sink in. Nimrod created a pseudo crisis that didn't exist. Lest we be scattered was the mantra of the people. Where did they think they think they got that? They got that from the propaganda coming from Nimrod. Look, guys, we got to clump up together. We got to unify because the end of the world's coming and God's going to destroy us. So we got to unify against him and prevent another flood because we're going to go on the attack against God because we can they, he killed all of our ancestors in the flood and we can't trust this God. And so we're going to have to go after him and, and declare war on him. Are you with me? That was a pseudo issue. It wasn't even a problem. But what have you learned about propaganda? Goebbels was the greatest in our century, in our time period. Tell a lie long enough and the lemmings will believe it. All you ever hear in the media is lies. But the average person who's low information doesn't know what's going on. Every time they pass by CNN or any of these news channels, the propaganda they hear, whether they're at an airport or in the doctor's thing, they'll always have CNN going. And what is the problem with CNN? It's all propaganda. And they'll say, Russian collusion. If you heard that a hundred times, if you're a low information person, what do you think? I guess there's a lot of stuff going on. It's Russia collusion. I don't know. There's, they're embroiled. The same thing they're doing to Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. I told my class this morning. Some friend of his gave him some champagne and cigars, 
And they've turned it into him being bribed by these people. Hundreds, he's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've got to get him out of there. We've got to impeach him. We've got to get him out of there because he's taking bribes. He's taking bribes. And you keep saying that long enough, the low information person believes it. The average human being is not like you. I'm talking to an audience and standing in front of me that you're up on things. You know about how the world's running. You know about all the things going on. Go outside of this, this room and go to the average person at the mall. They don't know what's going on. They don't have a clue. How easy it is to manipulate a person who doesn't have a clue. And Nimrod is doing that. He manufactures a crisis. So think about the crises they're manufacturing today. You know them. Climate change. Right? The world's going to end. And then you have Greta uh, from Sweden being the new savior of the eco-environmentalism. They're calling her uh, the new Messiah in Sweden. They're putting portraits of her in Sweden and in San Francisco. <laughs> she's our new Messiah because she's going to save the planet from our SUV carbon emissions. You guys, how dare you even eat a burger? How dare you even eat animal flesh? Don't you know the flatulence from an animal is causing carbon emissions? All these cows are causing carbon emissions because you like to eat a steak and a, a hamburger. You ought to be ashamed, right? They want you to give up meat, which Paul told Timothy in the last days they would tell you to stop eating certain foods. Other hoaxes that you see, you know, even on the political level, Russian collusion, Netanyahu, bribery, whatever. All these things are made up. Or how about this? Here's the new crisis that we have to solve. We all got to get behind this. People are having their rights taken away. What people? Well, we're talking about illegal immigrants coming from different countries. They're having their rights taken away. What rights? Well, the Constitution affords them rights. No, 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 no. Read the Constitution. It affords the citizens of this country, rights, not people from other countries. And then our people are now wanting to say, well, we want to get, extend those rights to people in you know, where or Venezuela or, or England or whatever. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. What are you doing? You're creating a manufactured crisis. Remember the crisis at the border? Trump's got them in cages. He's separating the families. We've been doing that for decades. We have to do it. It's a manufactured crisis. We're just putting kids in cages like animals, and how dare we treat them like that? No, they're holding facilities so we know who they are. So we know it, this is not a guy running drugs or doing sex slavery. we got to know that. We don't want anyone just walking into our country. What are you, insane? But no, this is a crisis. So what is their end goal? Bring the whole world here, right? How, how does that work? Who pays for this? It doesn't matter. When you ask Bernie Sanders and you ask AOC, where are you going to get the money for this? I don't know, but we just need to do it. It's the right thing to do it. Who's going to pay for this? Rich people. What does that mean? The rich people are too smart. They're not here getting taxed. They have their money in offshore accounts. Duh. They're not. That's why they're rich. They don't put money in a bank here in America and get taxed to death. They're too smart for that. This is collectivism. This is a manufactured crisis. And this is exactly what Nimrod did. Now let's turn to the bricks and the mortar. They had brick for stone. This was a substitution instead of stone. And they had asphalt for mortar, tar. You know, like the black tar you see, it, it's waterproof. They used tar a lot in the ancient world to seal things 
would make them waterproof. Moses' basket was sealed with the same bitumen. It's a tar to keep it from sinking. Okay, but what is this saying? There's a lot more than, than just looking on the surface here. They substituted brick for stone. Okay? Now, this is the first time we see this, by the way. What is a brick versus a stone? Say God, like for instance, God, when he had the patriarchs build an altar to him, he made them do it out of stone that was unhewned, not cut by human hands. They had to use natural stone. Do you know what the symbolism is in that? Is I don't want anything that you produce. I only want things that are natural that I produced. So that's why the, the original altars were uncut stone that Abraham would have made or Job or any one of those. They could not use man-made devices on an altar because it symbolized man's work. It symbolized their ingenuity, their accomplishments. Now, something about bricks, and I, wanna, I want you to think about this with me a little bit. There's something there in this. Number one, bricks are unnatural and artificial and don't occur in nature as you know. Okay? That's telling something. Two, they're identical and uniform. They're interchangeable, right? Three, or uh, yeah, three is interchangeable. I said that. Four, they are worthless. Okay? If you break a brick, what does it matter? Just grab another one and replace that brick. Five, there's no identity in the brick. The brick loses its identity among hundreds and thousands of bricks. Now you're going to see the typology. Now you're, I'm going to take you into the typology of what the bricks represent. They represent several things. Obviously, human hands make them, manufacture them. But let me start with, there's two typologies here with the bricks. One is a societal, governmental typology, and one is an individual typology. Okay? What Moses is trying to say, and by, by them doing this, it's sim totally symbolic. The bricks represent how the Babylonian system views them. What do you mean? The way the global government today and the Babylonian system saw them then was this, that people are all the same. There's no individuality. We, in fact, we don't want individuality. We want little worker bees to do their jobs, and when they can't do it, we'll get rid of them. That every human is replaceable. Every human being must conform to the size and shape of what the government tells them to do. You cannot have your own opinion. You support the structure by your conformity. You're only seen as useful if you contribute to the structure. If you break and you're no good to support the structure, you're cast away and rejected. Maybe through abortion or euthanasia. We'll get rid of you. But if you can't contribute to society, you're of no value. Are you catching that? That's how the whore of Babylon sees people. I think there was a song about that. You're just another brick in the wall. I wonder where they got that term from. You're just another brick in the wall. Yes, you got it. The whore views you and the system views you as just another brick. You're not important. You're irreplaceable. You just need to do what you need to do to support the global government. Huh. How about on an individual level? 
on an individual level, the bricks speak a message to all humanity. The bricks represent humans' good works. They made it. They're not living stones or stones. They made it, they cut it, they sized and shaped it, and they're building something up to where? The heavens. Are you catching that? It's their own good works being stacked on one another in order to ensure them heaven on an individual level. Isn't that what we all thought before we got saved? I'm going to go to heaven based on my own good works. And I keep stacking my good works on top of everything else. And I just keep stacking and stacking. Hopefully, there will be enough to reach all the way to heaven so I can get a stairway into heaven. I think there was another song about that, too. I kind of wonder if they, they studied the Tower of Babel. I don't know. But they were doing this. Now, interesting enough, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, look what we're called by God. Coming to him as a living stone, not a brick, rejected indeed by men. This is called, you know, this, the living stone is Christ, right? But chosen by God and precious, you also, what? As living stones are being built up a spiritual house. You see the contrast. God doesn't call us bricks. He calls us living stones. And think about that. What living stones represent. To make a wall of stone, you have to make sure they all fit together and they're in unique shapes, which is lending itself to the body of Christ. Some people are hands, some people are foots, some people are heads, some are noses. They all fit to form one body. And the same thing about living stones. You don't cut them, you just put them in a, a situation where they all fit together because they're unique and you can't take one stone out because the wall will fall and they're very valuable for the wall. You see the contrast with just stones versus bricks? That's the contrast of the whore of Babylon versus the kingdom of God and the way God sees us. Wow. Well, what about this? I'll end on this. It says they used asphalt for mortar, tar for mortar. That's, that's interesting. With that being said, Asphalt was then used as the thing to stick the bricks together, okay? And the altars that God wanted them to have, they were not to use any adhesives. They just put the stones stacked up on one another with no adhesive, okay? The adhesive obviously would later on be understood as the Holy Spirit holding things together. That's why it's invisible and you don't see the adhesive in the stones. But in human stones, human brick laying, they put... In another way, I think the King James translated slime or tar. They're using that to stick the bricks together, okay? So there's two typologies here I want to bring out. There's first a societal, governmental typology, and there's an individual typology. The societal typology of understanding the asphalt and the, you know, that, that became the adhesive for the bricks is simply this. It's black. And that represents the false religion of Babylon. They were stacking their good works with the glue of a false religion. Now, that principle has been used all throughout history, by the way. Every, I guess, wicked, whiz, I don't know what you want to call it, ruler has realized you can't rule the masses without religion. They got to have some form of religion to make them obey. 
There's got to be a higher calling in their life. And obviously it's false religions, but they use religion to keep the glue of their society. Now, in the time of Constantine, he used Christianity to glue the Roman Empire. He, he knew that. He needed that. And so he used that. And that's why he got paganized and all corrupted. But rulers do realize you can't just strip a society of its religion. You have to take away the real religion and introduce a false religion, which is exactly what's happening here in America. They've taken Christianity out, the real unifier of our culture, and stuck in a false religion of humanism, new age, whatever you want to call it, tolerance, the horror of Babylon, to glue the society together. So now, do you know how they're gluing us together? Do you know what the catchphrases are? Tolerance. Tolerance. That's the glue, but that's a religion. You know, hey, hey, put away your doctrinal distinctives for unity. Compromise your theology for unity so we can all be one and solve the world's problems. But you and I are looked at as those who don't want to solve the world's problems. You and I are looked at as we hate society. We hate human beings. They said that in the first century about the Christians as well. The Ro uh, one of the Roman writers said, these Christians hate everybody. They said that in the first century. Think about that. So what you start seeing is, is it the societal glue that the whore will use is false religion. Well, that's, that's it. That's one of the legs of the whore of Babylon. Politics, economics, religion. It's happening right now. Now, what about the, the asphalt on a personal level? Again, it's a personal typology to all human beings. As you know, the bricks represent good works. These are what human beings are producing to get a stairway to heaven. Okay. But what is the glue in these people's lives that they're stacking the bricks together on? Simple. It's the same principle. False religion. That's the blackness. That's the tar. So when someone is building their way to heaven with their own bricks, they're doing it with a false version of salvation that I can be saved on my own merits, on my own good works. And so that is the glue that's keeping the bricks stacked together. And obviously, that is not the way you get to heaven. You cannot get there on your own good works. And if you believe that, you're in a false religion, which that's what all these other false religions and cults teach, right? Is works-based salvation. And so that's a little bit about the bricks and the mortar. And we have to stop there. We'll keep digging in this. But what's the application in this? Well, again, you know, I can't bridge it to your marriage. Obviously, there's, or, or parenting or anything like that. This is, this is a global worldview application that you have to understand. The first thing you have to understand, like I mentioned before, there's three aspects to it that you have to understand. You have to understand the economics of today. It's willfully ignorant not to understand what they're pushing in economics. Okay, they're pushing economics that are far from the Bible. What is the Bible? What's the closest thing to the biblical ideal? I tell you right now, it's free market. Why do you think in America they're attacking the free market system and, and demonizing capitalism? Yeah, I know there's unfettered capitalism like the Chinese do and things of that nature. That, but I'm talking about Christian capitalism, okay, with morality infused in it. Why do you think they attack that? Because the free market system, its principles derive from the Bible. That's where it derives from. That's why America is so successfully economically because we're using biblical principles. Why did they blame the Jews all through European history for being rich? 
You know why? They practice biblical economics. And they say, well, the Zionists are controlling the world and, you know, they're the ones controlling. No, 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 no. They're practicing biblical principles. That's why they're doing well economically. That's why we did well economically as a country until now. Do you know that over 50% of the millennials would love to be in a socialistic, communistic, Marxist society? They think it's cool because they like free stuff, stuff they don't have to work for, just given to them. Isn't that scary? So economics is one of the things you have to watch. Number two, politics. And this is not about a Republican or Democrat. You have to understand what the global elite are trying to do. They are pushing a one-world government. That's where they're going. That's where it ends, according to Scripture. Three, religion. Your most dangerous enemy is not someone outside of the church. Guess who your most dangerous enemy is? Someone who's being used by the whore inside your church. You won't spot her. You won't spot him. They will sit there for a long time and you won't know that. And let me tell you something. Their intent is to gather a following. That's what they're doing to churches. They infiltrate to gather a following to pull and suck people away. Now let me tell you something about this. If you're distracted by guys like George Soros or Hillary Clinton, you have your eye on the wrong target. Satan is doing that to trick you to look here, but don't look here. I'm telling you, anyone with the name pastor in front of their name in these days, you better put up your radar on. They're the most dangerous people I have ever seen, especially the younger ones. Be careful about who you listen to. Be careful about who you read because there's all kinds of false doctrine. That's how she's getting people. And you know what she's going to do with those people? She's going to make them compromise their Christian values. And it's already happening. Well, you know, we're in a new day and age, she's going to say, and things, times have changed. And, you know, I, I get it that back then that was wrong and stuff. But, you know, today is 2019. We're going to 2020. And, you know, times have changed. And, and so I think we need to accept that lifestyle now. Or we need to accept, you know, uh, transvestites and, and, and just them living their lives. And, you know, and here's what's coming next, pedophilia, uh, legalized pedophilia. It's coming. No one's stopping that, by the way. And they're going to say, well, times have changed. And let me ask you this. What does God say about him? I do not change. If we're standing on the word of God, it doesn't change. Therefore, you and I are obligated to stand in the face of the whore of Babylon and stand your ground on the rock of Christ and say, not on my watch. It ain't happening in my church. It ain't happening in my family. It ain't happening in my city. I will stand my ground and I will not leave this territory that Christ has gained for me. I will not cower in fear because I'm worried about some type of persecution that might come from the whore. So be it. I will take my stand, and if you take me down, fine. Then I can only be resurrected. You can't hurt me. That's the attitude you have to have. This in the trenches, willing to fight, willing to take it on. And they're not used to that kind of person. They're used to Christians cowering in a corner, sucking their thumb, saying, oh, what will I do? Wringing their hands. What will we do? Fight. Fight against her as long as we're here until the Lord calls us home, okay? Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. 
Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.